Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Brad Van Leeuwen, co-founder and COO at Cladara. Cladara's mission is to make SaaS scalable for the companies and people that use it. It's one place to manage all your software subscriptions and save a ton of money. They've raised over $24 million in funding. They have thousands of customers all around the globe. Brad's been on both sides of the table as both an operator and an investor. We have so much to get into. This is going to be a lot of fun. Excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. So this is this is a really, really cool story. I'm excited to dig into it. And you have a really interesting background. You have a lot of experience. And so I think a lot of these learnings are going to be pretty powerful. Where I'd like to begin is when when you guys first started and found product market fit, like what what does the team look like? How did you actually like figure it out? Like provide a little bit of context for us and then we can kind of hit the ground running and go from there. Yeah, for sure. So in a lot of ways, we had product market fit right from the start. So, you know, we the reason we'd started Cladara, both Christina and myself had experienced the problem that we solved at different companies kind of at the same time. And so we knew we had at least two customers that wanted to use us. We knew exactly how to solve their problems because they were our problems before we were there. But that was really just like the start of a long journey. So you know, we raised a very small amount of money, you know, less than 50,000, built an MVP, got those first two customers. And then we started going into listening mode. So for us, it wasn't so much around the question, like what problem were we solving and how should we solve it? But understanding more deeply about the whole problem space from those first two customers and the first 10 customers, the first 20 customers, because Though we understood it from first principles, you know, we didn't know all the parts that happened in the water under the waterline. So SaaS touches a lot of people in the organization. It's not just, you know, how do we buy it, which was the perspective that we were looking at it from. How do we buy it? How do we manage it? But it was really like as a finance leader, how does SaaS across the business affect me? As an IT leader, how does it affect me? As an as a people leader, how does it affect me? And so from there we spent more than a year just having a lot of conversations with the market, but also with existing customers to say, you know, what problems are you facing and where we spotted patterns? You know, we went yeah. out and, and built those new features. That's kind of interesting because, I mean, an easy way to say what you guys do is you, you, you can look at all the different types of SaaS like packages or subscriptions that a company has and put them all in one place and actually able to see everything that's going on. And then you can obviously do a bunch of things with it. But what I'm hearing right from the get-go is right out of the gates, you knew, obviously from, from both you and Christina's backgrounds, is you knew that this was not a one-touch department type of thing. People make decisions as a group, especially when it comes to money. And so inherently what you're doing is, is you're actually figuring out this approach to say, well, what does the finance department think? And what does the IT department think? And what does the sales department like? You're 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 ultimately thinking all those things through at the earliest earliest stage possible. Yeah, for sure. Like if we were just building a a spend management platform like Brex or, or Ramp or something, it's very simple, right? Person goes out, they buy desk chairs or donuts, they pay for it, they take a picture of the receipt. Finance is happy. Someone's got a donut to eat and a chair to sit on job done. The fundamental difference with software is that, you know, they're big commitments, they're ongoing commitments, right? They're subscriptions. They don't just affect the buyer, they affect at very least the buyer's team, if not the whole business. And not only that, they don't just affect you, they change the way you operate and they create work for others downstream, right? If someone buys software, for sure, the IT team need to know, for, for sure, the finance team are going to figure out about it one way or another, and they're going to have work to do every month. And so figuring out how we can bring all those jobs to be done from a single source of truth so that instead of a lot of people having to work for their software, their software could go back to working for them. That's really interesting. I'm curious, from the, from the very, very get-go, you guys had some hypotheses, and then you started talking to all these different people. And you were doing a lot of different outbound. You're really focused on having conversations. Is there a is there a, a a core competency or is there a specific kind of theory or hypothesis that you had 
that you ultimately changed based on all these conversations? You know, I think, again, we were our first customers, so we had a pretty strong view of what needed to be done and how the product needed to, needed to do it. I think, you know, there have been a lot of things along the way, particularly around the edge of our product. So the SaaS management, certainly then it wasn't a defined category and it still isn't today. So simple things like what is in scope, what, what should be a feature that goes into this category and what is out of scope is something we're testing all the all the time we had this idea quite early on europe had passed a law that said if you were a fintech you needed to do vendor risk management and you needed to answer these 80 questions about every third-party vendor you worked with including SaaS. and we thought uh-huh there's a lot of fintech in europe if we go build a feature that made that really easy we'll get all those customers and in the end you know we spoke to people they were excited about it because they were thinking about how they had to do it in the end, nobody cared when we built it. We, luckily, we, we built it in a really light MVP way to, to test the idea, but nobody cared. What we learned through that is that people have to say they care about compliance. They can't say they don't care about it, but are they actually going to spend money and, and do it? Yeah. Now, having said that, like it wasn't a massive failure because that feature stayed there. A very small number of customers care about it deeply. And now that we have slightly larger customers what we've learned is that that regulation actually maps really well to like SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and so that feature has started a lot of great conversations with newer customers more recently that are not fintech they're not in Europe they're in US and that's helped us close deals so we were kind of right after being quite wrong for for a yeah. time well that that's a that's a nice nice way to think about it I, I know that you're a, a, a big outbound, go talk to customers kind of guy, go talk to people out in the market. And I know that's one of your your keys is to say, hey, get out, do outbound as early as you possibly can. C can you get, can you give some light as to why you think, why, why are you so strongly in that direction and some of the things that it ultimately helped you do because of it? Yeah, for sure. I remember I came to this idea, not so much in sales, but as a kid growing up playing basketball. It's a, it's a lesson that stuck with me for life. So I was too slow to be as short as I was. I either need to be much taller or much faster. And so <laughs> whilst I was reasonably competitive at basketball, I got frustrated, right? I was not the best player on my team. And I remember growing up at some point, my dad told me like, stop complaining, just go get the ball yourself, right? Just go get the ball. And like that helped me be a marginally better basketballer, but but certainly in business, right? Like yeah. rather than waiting for things to come to you, it's so easy to do a blog post. It's so easy to pay for a Google ad. It's really hard to pick up the phone and talk to someone that you've never spoken to before. But yeah. it's the short, it's the best way to have conversations. And unless you have conversations, you're <laughs> not going to learn. And like this is something that we did very very early on in our journey. So. You know, we built our MVP, we had customer one, which was the company I used to work for and customer two, the company that Christina used to work for. But after that, we were like, look, let's not focus even so much on sales, right? Let's not count what's coming out of the bottom of the funnel because there's so much we need to learn. We need to learn like how to message our product, how to position it, who we're selling to, how to articulate their problems in, in their language, what else is going on in the market? How can we bring more people into our tent? And so we had this metric where we just had a KPI around how many discussions we were having with people outside of the business every day. And it didn't matter if they were a buyer or not, they could be, I don't know, an influencer or someone who could just use software, right? But we would have more custom, more conversations and eventually, you know, that led to being able to talk about things in the right way. It helped us build the muscle about going outbound and then it certainly set the tone for our, our sales motion after that which to this day is is primarily outbound that's interesting so when you when you think about it i mean this is i don't know pre, i want to say pre-product or mvp type product like you didn't have this like full-fledged type thing going on i mean you had a few customers that were more friendlies than anything else how do you really how do you start selling via outbound without all of this i mean is it a, a confidence play to say hey, this is what it could be I mean, it, with a KPI me measured around just like the number of conversations, like, are you actually trying to sell? I feel like so many, so many founders are saying like, well, 
I don't have anything yet. Like, how am I supposed to sell it? Like, how am I supposed to deliver it? I don't have any of these things. Like, how do I even do outbound? And then it's this catch-22 constantly. Yeah, so our MVP basically then was like a list of all the software that you had in the business. And the way it worked was you could click a button, get a new virtual credit card and pay for something new. And once you paid for that thing, it added it to the list, right? That was the thing. And the real value prop, the cool hook was click a button, instantly get a new virtual credit card. Click it a hundred times, get a hundred of them, right? It was, it, it had value and it did solve a problem for a lot of teams that were putting things on personal cards or not really having a process around it. So we knew it added that minimum expression of the value that we wanted to create. And so, but we didn't really focus on, on selling, right? Like we just focused on learning because we knew that that minimum expression of the value we had wasn't the product we were going to end up with, but it's how we could start the conversation and look, there were customers that got value from that very basic feature yeah. set very early on. And, but most importantly, it meant that we had the phone number of a finance leader that we could talk to that cared about our product and would tell us what, what else they wished it would do. That's interesting. It's, it's great advice. I mean, if you focus on trying to sell, they're going to give you advice. And if you just focus on trying to learn and ask questions, you might actually figure out where your business actually has an opportunity to go. And oftentimes and not. They're going to go, well, so can I buy this? You know, it's, it's really fun. I remember we'd sort of gone through this mode where we would talk to anybody that would talk to us, buyer or, or not, and that we learned a lot. And then we're like, okay, now we need to, now we need to start doing some proper outbound, right? Like sending emails, giving a message, trying to get a, get a meeting. And this was, this was fun because obviously we didn't know how to talk about our product yet. And everyone that's done outbound knows that they're going to get a lot of four letter words back from time to time from people <laughs> that think they're responding to a machine or someone using yeah. sales loft or something. And at the time we were not, we were just like typing them out. And I yeah. remember like pr we probably got half our first 30 customers that we'd got through outbound where someone had sent me one of these really rude messages back. And I would go back to them and say, Hey, it sounds like you know, you think really passionately about this as a founder, that sounds like a great learning opportunity. Could we have a chat? I'd love to learn more. And they were like, you know, shit, this is actually a human being. I yeah. would never talk to a, a person like that in a bar. I, I'm kind of morally compelled to take a call here and help this guy out. who's trying to build a business. And yeah. then we'd learn, we'd learn more about the problem and occasionally we'd get a deal from it. It, it worked really yeah. well. It's a lot of learning. I mean, everything you're saying right now is just learning, learning, learning. I mean, it kind of changes your perspective. So let's fast forward here. So you start to have all these outbound conversations. You learn a bunch of things. How'd you know that you like truly had product market fit? Obviously you're solving a problem that you both have had in your own businesses. You're getting some customers. So it's not that, you know, you, you have traction that way, but like, how'd you know you had truly actually had something? You know, I think the, the key thing with product market fit is it's relative is with all products like as long as the onboarding's not too hard as long as the cost is not too high you're going to get customers come in the front door the way you know you've got product market fit is if they keep using you and they don't churn and of those first customers that, that we had you know certainly the first two are still customers today one of them's a quite a large customer and many of the other 30 are as well right so we knew that we had a product that delivered value our challenge then became a little bit different. It's like, how do we, how do we help more people find out about this thing that we know can help them? And that, be, that, that then raised the question, like, what is our go-to-market motion? Do we want to focus on outbound? And if so, what's our next step here? Because at the time, Christina and I were doing sales, doing support, doing product, doing everything because it was, there were four or seven mm -hmm. of us, four engineers, Christina and myself and a graduate that we hired in the pandemic in the local, like the village pub. And, yeah. you know, he said he, he had our social media account. And so to scale it up, we had to take some sort of different approach than what we were doing and, and figuring out what to focus on. Well, no better time like the present. Let's dive into that. Like, how'd you actually figure that out? I mean, so much of, you know, so, so much of advice could be saying, Hey, how do, you, how do you look at your customers, right? It could be small, medium, large, and, and you can define that in a number of ways. You could say pick it by industry or pick it by department. Like, how did you actually figure out, like, what was your initial go-to-market? And then we can obviously dive into some of the other pieces. 
So we, when we started out, obviously we, we solved the problem that we solved for us. And so where we started selling was other companies like us. We were confident that we could speak their language. We were confident that we would get speaking slots at trade shows to help build that trust from, you know, calling in favors from events we'd sponsored in previous companies in the past. So we started selling to companies like our small, small tech companies, because we knew that if you use software, we were valuable. And the easiest way to know if you use software is if you're a software company. So that's where we started. The, the big decision, it was a really important decision for us at the time was we needed to make a, a first sales hire. So by this point, we knew more or less what language worked. Outbound was a hobby. We hadn't done it in a scalable way, but we knew we could get demos. Once they were on a demo, we knew how to demo the product. We knew we weren't very good at discovery, but hey, we could give a killer seven minute demo of our product that would, would close. We were too busy to follow up real well. So we knew there was a, a good opportunity to close more deals just by having more capacity and, and, and following up better. So what we did was we decided to hire our first salesperson and our approach there was we wanted someone that could be full stack. So they're like a head of sales of a team of one. And the person that we hired Oscar, we'd bought from before or rather Christina had bought from before. And this was two years previously, the, the experience um, of buying from him was so good that two years earlier, Christina had said to him, Oscar, I'm going to hire you one day. And so, you know, we'd like got to a point and we we're ready to hire and we, we reached out to Oscar and said, Hey, Oscar, do you want to come work for us to be head of sales of a team of one? And if it works, we're going to scale it up. And fortunately he said yes. And, and it was a really great decision for us. Yeah. How that's interesting as a, I haven't heard that one from a hiring tactic to say, Hey, hire someone that you bought from. Cause that was probably a good experience. Kind of they, you know, not, not a luck thing. What what were what was it that you were looking for that embodied this person outside of the you know the experience that you had? But it was like, how do you know that this person could be the the full stack rep? How did you know that they could thrive in such a young company where there's not a lot of structure? How do you know all the different things? Because a sales rep at that stage and a sales rep at Salesforce today and a sales rep at where you are currently, those are those are three different types of reps right there. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great point. And look, frankly, I'd like to say it was great strategy, but we got lucky. <laughs> the one thing that yeah. was important for us and the reason why two years before that, Christina had said, I'm going to hire you one day, Oscar, was that he, we really felt that he shared our values, right? Like, and I, I believe this to today that the majority of interactions that the buyers, the market, the world at large has with your company is through sales, right? They're having conversations with people. And so as a founder, like to hand over the reins of that is, it's a hard thing to do. And so having bought from him and knew that he was going to be such a good steward of our values, our focus on quality, our attention to detail. And he, we knew that, you know, succeed or fail, he would try really hard really care, and really care and do it in service to the, the greater mission that we're on meant that we just kind of, guessed he would be the right person to figure it out. And, and he was. That's awesome. So what, what did that look like? So you, you make this hire, Oscar starts, you, you and Christina are running sales, obviously. Like, is it like, I'm out, you're in, go get him, tiger. Like what, what, what did that actual transition really look like and how long did it take? So, yeah. So he, he, he was young. So Oscar was, I, I don't know his age, early, no, maybe not early twenties, maybe just mid twenties. He'll tell me, he'll, he'll text me after he listens to this, tell me if I was right or wrong, <laughs> but you know, he was, he hadn't been a head of sales before we knew yeah. he was a, like a good seller. We knew that he represented our values and he'd done the a job. He'd done the SDR job. And so what I told him was that Oscar, you're our SDR number one and, and you're our AE number one. So the SDR one, like there's, there's an approach to that. These are the type of customers we go after. See if you can book meetings, right? And if you can book meetings, we're going to go hire two SDRs and see if you can teach someone else to do that thing. When the meetings come for the first X number of meetings, I'm going to be the one taking the demo. Your job is to learn how we do the demo and then do all the follow-up that I wish I had the time to do really diligently. And you're going to bring those deals to close. And then at some point, 
once we know that once we know that you're in a place to take a demo, you're going to take a demo. You're going to do all of that, and you're going to improve upon the playbook that we've iterated towards as founders. And then once there are enough deals for one AE to take in order to close, you're going to go hire your first AE. And what we're going to do is then keep scaling those SDRs and, and AEs as, as we need to. But you're going to have to prove it out. and You're going to have to be the one that can show that it can be taught to someone that's not you and not me. I, I love it. I mean, that makes so much sense where it's kind of like, here, let's work at the top of the funnel. Let's figure it out. Once you get it, I'll do it. You watch me. Then I watch you. Then you're able to do it on your own and kind of repeat, repeat, make it better, make it better, and then off and running. How long would you say that it, it took for him to figure out top of funnel and f how to figure out the AE side? Because you don't have a lot there, right? There's no like, hey, this is how Brad and Christina did it for so many years and just follow this and you'll be successful, obviously. Yeah, I think so. The SDR one was quite quick. So it turned out that so because we're in a new category, nobody was looking for a solution to their problem because right. it had never been solved before but we knew very well the pain that they experienced and we could articulate that to them quite well and so we figured that out within i want to say one to two months and then you start a hiring process for bringing in an sdr right or two sdrs the ae won a little longer because you know there's just fewer deals coming down the bottom of the funnel there are fewer repetitions there's a sales cycle to sure. to think about but even that might have been maybe a month or two more. I think in hindsight, as we were in these very early days of building out the sales machine, the one mistake we made was we were too conservative on hiring. It slowed us down early on because like once you've got an S two SDRs that are you know hitting quota and booking meetings, you should already have the third and fourth in the pipe getting trained, ready to ramp up. Because if you wait too late, then you've got, I don't know, a two or three month ramp. Oh, yeah. yeah. And same with AEs. Interesting. How how much of it, I mean, one to two months for him to come in and, and kind of hit the ground running. Obviously, you're a great seller to begin with. But to come in and hit the ground running and kind of figure this all out in a, a handful of months what what do you what do you tie that to is it is it him and just overall skill is it a lot of the work that that you and christina did ahead of time as far as for a year talking to all these potential prospects customers that type of thing i mean for him to hit the ground running like that and from an sdr point of view make some pretty pretty good impact and traction to be able to turn around and say hey let's go hire more people within a handful of months is pretty impressive yeah, look, I think it was, all, it was all those things. Like Oscar was certainly great. We'd certainly done the work. I think also the other thing that you can do early on that you can't do later is you can be less efficient, right? So if you say that, I don't know, at the time our targets were really high, the deal sizes were smaller, but let's say we wanted an SDR to book 25 meetings in a month. Well, your conversion rate from account touch to meeting doesn't matter so much because the TAM relative to one SDR is infinite. But as you get, have more SDRs, that efficiency rate starts to really matter. And so you don't have to solve the efficiency early on. That certainly helped us. But what, what it did do was by being perhaps a little less efficient, we could get deals down the funnel, learn that demo, learn that close, and then learn that method of teaching a second AE before worrying about having to solve something like efficiency, which only becomes important later. That makes sense. So right out the gate, when you hired him, you put you put goals and KPI numbers in place to say, hey, I want you to set X number of meetings on a, a weekly or monthly basis right out the gate? Not right away. So we had an idea about what might be possible. What we said is one of the things that, you know, congratulations as head of sales of team of one, <laughs> one of the, the, the things that you'll need to figure out by the time it's a team of two or three is where do we set targets, right? right. So start to work through this and tell us what you think is a reasonable target and then we can start to do the maths like does this motion work from a from a unit economic standpoint yeah no that that makes sense kind of build it as you come so then then that results back into so you're not in day-to-day -day selling or at least nearly as much as you used to right you now you have oscar and he's doing his thing you are you have your sales hire 
growing, things are starting to go well. What did what did the actual like sales manager, sales coach, founder, whatever you want to call it, like what did that look like from that perspective? Now that you had all the million other things to do as a founder, but you also needed to manage a salesperson. And that was a, a you know, there was a lot of challenges there, both for, for you know, that our head of sales, the team, and, and also me, right? We were all figuring out what, what was important whilst it was happening. And, and generally what we found was we only knew what was important when it was already in the rear vision mirror and we realized we either did something well or poorly. I think the... Oscar, like our, we, we had a lot of free reign because we needed, we were running very fast in a lot of directions at the same time. Yeah. So it was about like, for me, there were two really important things. So number one, having that cadence of conversations, it was daily, right? Like our entire, until people begged us to stop our entire go to market team, that was sales and marketing. We're on a call every single day every single day all together trading highs lows and asks learning making sure information was flowing really really fast so that was that was number one number two and this this still exists to this day is that we had to set up the infrastructure to be really transparent on on data so my my big thing is you should be able to ask anyone at cladara you know was last month a good month or not and everyone should give the same answer because everyone should know how to measure that thing and everyone should know how to interpret it. And so having a lot of data, you know, for, from the perspective of sales, like how many demos are booked, how many have taken, how are they converting? How does that, how are the different performances of the different reps? How is that mapping down to our performance versus targets at a company level, our revenue, what's our revenue today, right? And, and how has the work we've done influenced that? And so that way, there actually didn't really need to be a lot of management because everyone knew if what we were doing was working or not. And if it didn't work, that was okay. We should just go try something else. Now that, so at what point in time that you moved from daily to another cadence, is it Oscar started to build out the team a little bit more and you took on different responsibilities or like, what, what did that look like? Cause I would imagine meeting daily, sharing all those learnings, data transparency, like that's, that's a lot. I mean, it obviously extremely important and, and, and right. So a top priority, but like how, it, it evolved over time. Yeah, for sure. So, so the data piece, we found ways to do asynchronously. So, you know, in our office, we would have, you know, big 50 inch televisions with real time data on it. Some data that was designed to help us measure our performance, other data, which just made sure you look at the screen, like here are all the SaaS products that our customers have bought in the last 30 seconds. Oh, look, it's changed again 30 seconds later. Isn't that cool? Right. So to wow. draw attention to it, pouring daily data at this, like the top three KPIs of the company to the company, to the general channel in Slack at the same mm -hmm. time, automatically every single day, seven days a week, these pieces helped a lot. In terms of the standups, the first thing that broke was they just got too big. So we had to make them smaller. So instead of having a sales and marketing one every day, we had a sales one and a marketing one separately. And then they got together as a go-to-market function, maybe twice a week, right? So we we changed that. And then as we, you know, now the team is is quite a bit bigger. We're 25, I think, in, in sales. They, they now have, you know, pods they have te pods and teams is how we call it so small pods sdrs yeah. and aes together teams yeah. will be for example a group of sdrs that that work together on on enablement and things you know you, they have their own cadence but constantly as things get too big thinking about how we break them down but always with the idea of how do we bring people together to share learnings as frequently as possible like a learning that's three days old is just old Right, it should be. It should happen every single day, if possible, ideally. And yeah. then, second of all, like some obviously accountability. Right, sales is hard, but you know, celebrating people that do the dials and send the emails and get that great chase is is super important. Yeah, in the in the earlier days, when when it got beyond Oscar and you had a smaller team, how much were you still involved in leading sales? Like, I mean, are you, yeah. are you reading emails? Are you digging into like call recordings and that type of thing? 
I still watch demo recordings every single day and, and also oh, success onboarding calls every single day. <laughs> Not as many as I would like, right? But I I think, you know, we, we have to know our customer and our market, and that's a great one of the, the ways to do it. I think so what happened over time, so this was Oscar's first management position, right? And he's all of a sudden managing a team that's bigger than any team that probably he'd ever worked for, right? So I spent, I increasingly spent more and more time with him and helping him on that journey as the team grew, as opposed to like joining every sales standup, right? That, that became harder and I had to choose yeah. how I, I spent my time, especially as we were growing other teams in the business, like marketing, like success, which also needed, you know, were perhaps in a more nascent stage because they were smaller, but needed different kinds of attention. Sure. That's interesting. T tell me more what that means. Cause that's, it's one thing to just get in and start, you know, running a pipeline meeting or ru running a one-on-one, -on -one, which are, are, you know, you have your scorecards or you have your frameworks and that type of thing. But right now you're essentially coaching a player, a coach who's figuring out both things on the fly. One is how to sell this product from that doesn't know anything about, right? Two is building a team, both an SDR team and an A team. Like there's a lot going on. There's a pandemic that's happening. So you're obviously not able to like see everybody face to face every single minute of the day. When you say, hey, we're, we're, I'm really working with him one-on-one, -on -one, what does that exactly mean? It just means spending the time, right? Like I, I would like to say there was some overall story arc or some structure. Some days it was super tactical. Other days it was, you know, helping him think through that what if we wanted to change comp, for example, how that would flow through to CAC and margin and the performance of the business, right? So helping him understand some of the wider context that maybe he hadn't come across before. He knew all the theories, but just hadn't ha had the opportunity to have to think through it. So trying to always give him more context for the decision. So instead of taking a decision, like a great decision as an individual contributor, but yeah. a great decision as someone that's got that peripheral vision about how it affects things in the second and third order. That's interesting. How much were you involved with just kind of helping build out the team versus did you, were you trying to kind of release it and let him kind of do his thing? Or, I mean, you come up with this SDR AE model with, with one manager and then it obviously has grown and we can get into that, but how, how much was it Brad's influence versus, Hey, you, you go figure it out and you tell me. Yeah. I, I much prefer the second model. Now we're going to have a discussion once you figure it out, but I, you know, I, I don't want, I'd never in anything, I don't want to like spoon feed it because having been involved with a few companies now, what I know, what I've come to believe to be true is the problems are always the same. The solutions are usually different. And so I don't think there's like, if there was just one way to solve every problem, every tech company in the world would be a unicorn already. And that's just not the, not the case. And so, you know, taking the inputs we have, really trusting his judgment. And then, you know, often we agreed, sometimes we didn't. And just like talking it out and, and talking about why. Yeah. Well, you said something, just you slipped it in there, trust. I, I don't think that trust that I, I see in some of the most successful companies, the ones that scale the fastest, there's a lot of trust between founders and, and, and kind of leadership team to next level leadership team all the way down. Trust is, is so key. Otherwise it's going to take forever and good people are going to leave. Yeah. I think you have to trust by default. You have to start from trust and then, you know, you of course calibrate, right? It doesn't mean that someone has to take all the same decisions as you. They just have to know like the types of things where the materiality or the novelty of it yeah. or the risk of it means that you need to kind of discuss it before running ahead or whether it's a situation where you can can run ahead and i think the most important thing is that if you know if uh if trust was a deposit account it starts at 100 it can go up but it also can go down and yeah. i think making sure that it always goes up is really important because once it starts coming down it's really hard to reverse that it's hard yeah. to reverse gravity is <laughs> you figure that out and you're uh you're a rich person when so this is all happening and you're starting to make some pretty good progress here. Team's starting to grow. 
what does the actual kind of go-to-market team look like? So you have your SDRs, you have your AEs, Oscar's kind of leading the team. I mean, what does marketing look like? What does CS look like? Do you have RevOps, sales ops, something like that? Like how is everybody actually orged together? Yeah, so by the time we'd, we'd raised our, our Series A, we, you know, we had a marketing function, right? So the way I would, where our marketing function was strong at this point was, you know, really around, really around brand. It was strong around, you know, collecting testimonials. It was strong around providing collateral to salespeople. It wasn't, it wasn't yet like bringing in opportunities for AEs to close, right? That, that, that we were not there yet on. We also had a really nascent success team. So we, our, our CMO at the time, he'd been at a bunch of tech companies. We didn't know we, like what CS needed to be at Cladara. So we but we knew we needed something. So we said, Hey, Rob, go out and hire, go out and hire our first two CS people, see what that looks like. So we had something, but we didn't have very much structure yet. And that was, that was really it. We, I don't remember if we had sales ops yet. We had it like right around that time, but effectively within sales, it was our head of sales and a bunch of AEs and a bunch of SDRs. And that was it. And, yeah. you know, we learned a ton of lessons about why that probably shouldn't be it. <laughs> What, what, I'm curious, what, what are the, what's one or two that pops off the top of your head just because we're on the subject? Yeah, I think sales ops or revenue ops is important. So how you can automate as much as possible within the business. So identify in the, in the go to market motion where there are opportunities to optimize either in terms of automating processes or automating the way we figure out like which of these accounts in outbound we're going to prioritize and put extra effort into. That's a really high leverage point around integrating all the tooling. The other thing I think that we did not, well, another two things we didn't get right. So we, the way I saw, I sell and the way Oscar sold was, Hey, we're smart people. We love figuring it out. We think everyone, the whole world should operate that way too. And obviously that's not the case. And so we didn't have anything around enablement. We didn't really have a structured onboarding program. We didn't do enough to set new hires up for success, particularly SDRs that were often in their first job when they, when they joined yeah. us. And then the other pieces that we didn't get right, and we're still iterating on, but I think we're doing a lot better is that we had, you know, by the time the team was this big, a bunch of SDRs, a bunch of AEs all rolling up into a single person, we needed more structure and we, you know, we needed more experience kind of people in the middle so that one person didn't technically have to do, I don't know, 25 one-on-ones every month. So when you look back on it, is there a signal that you could point to to say, you know, Hey, this is when I would have hired, you know, sales enablement or hired sales ops, or, you know, here's where I would have hired, you know, a more um, quote unquote experienced sales leader. Like, do you, how, how do you think about the, what a shoulda couldas, or if I had to do it again, type of things? You know, it's, it's interesting because in a perfect world with infinite capital, you do all these things really early. The, the challenge you have is you need to, you need to decide how you allocate capital within a team and across teams. And so, you know, would it be great if we had, you know, more managers, more experienced managers, would it have been great if we had a sales trainer early on, would it have been great if we had sales up? Yeah, it would have been really awesome. And probably we should have done things a little bit earlier than we did. But that's only because we know how it worked out. I think in the time, you kind of have to wait for things to break because in a startup, right, if you don't, if you build everything as if you're, I don't know, Salesforce, when you've got a million dollars in the bank, you're just not going to get there, right? You're building, you're building like a school project or something, not a business. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. So when you think about it, is there anything that you would say, hey, if I had a chance, I'd do it differently? Or is it like what I'm hearing a little bit from you is to say, hey, if I had infinite money, I would have done it a little bit differently, but I probably would do it kind of the same way because we had to, to your point, you had to do it, let things break a little bit. We were a month or two or three or four behind, but we weren't like six years behind. Yeah, I think there were maybe some things we could have done earlier on 
around creating more structure within the team without adding more people in sales that weren't carrying quota, right? But how could we use the resources we had within the team to provide new support? So things like right now, one of the things we've done that's helped a lot is group SDRs and AEs into pods so that yeah. an SDR is going to be booking for the same AE so they can they can see their deals from the cradle to the grave. They, it speeds up their learning and, and just by the way things work, AEs are going to be more experienced and further along in their career. So they've got someone with them that is aligned and interested in their success and will help them out, even if their job is not managing that person, but just yeah. closing deals, right? Their, their interests are aligned that way. No, that's, that's interesting. How do you, how do you think of kind of the SDR to AE relationship? Do you, do you have it so that they're segmented by deal sizes, industries, customer profiles? I mean, with, with 25 salespeople on the team, like how have you segmented it out? over the course of, of, of growing it? So we've, we've experimented a little bit, segmenting it by geography. So effectively US and not US, right? So we, we've learned that, that people in the US like to buy from people sitting somewhere in the US, uh, that, that works well. People in Europe don't care, right? They're used to buying software from people in other places. We starting to think about how we can build expertise around narrower verticals than we currently define them, but we're, we're still early on in that process. I think when it comes to particularly SDRs, the biggest lever that you have is around helping, helping them build their knowledge in the persona that you sell to and the product. I think the industry and geography are dimensions, which at some level of scale are valuable, but less valuable because, you know, in our case, all things being equal. A finance person that is sitting in San Francisco is generally doing the same types of jobs to be done as a, you know, the same person doing the same role in Bucharest. I can see that. That's interesting. So, I mean, one of the things that you hear a lot about from SDRs, or maybe it's a complaint, is to say, I am, you know, to your, to your point, this is my first job ever. I don't, and I'm selling to the head of finance. What can I possibly say that this guy or this gal is going to be able to go, I want to take this conversation to your point, like having them feel it is a huge, huge thing. Obviously there's all the training and you know, you write it in this way and that type of thing. But like, to, how, how did you get, how did you help SDRs learn it so much faster to be able to make that impact? You know, I think that the, the training and the onboarding is well, the ongoing training, but in the initial onboarding is really, really important. But the thing is, even what, I, what I've come to learn is that the best SDRs, even in the absence of any training, in the absence of any onboarding, they always get there, right? So it's the cherry on top of the cake if you can, if you can train them a bit, but the smartest, most driven people just figure it out. Yeah. Doesn't scale real well though. Sure. So w with that, tell me a little bit about how you guys hire, because you, you, that must mean you're looking for a specific type of profile or specific types of attributes that you just don't compromise on. Yeah. So th there's part of it is about what type of people we hire, particularly as SDRs. And the second of it is about our process. So in terms of the, the process, maybe that's the easiest place to start. You know, we do some things that are not earth shattering, which is, you know, we do a screening call to check that they can ha we can have a decent conversation on a telephone. We give them a take home, right? The important thing is we always give feedback during the, the take home. So some are excellent, some are average, but we always give feedback to see how coachable they are. We always have them meet a peer as well, right? So the best SDRs are the best screen of future great SDRs. And then we all, either my, Christina or myself will interview everyone that joins the company. And that's not so much, can you do the job? We trust that by the time a, a candidate comes to us, they can do the job. We believe they can. We've interviewed them for values because we think that values help you in two ways. So as a team, we can be super diverse, but if we operate from the same sense of values, we're going to function really well as a team whether you know no matter what religion gender sexual preference whatever those things are 
same values, we can we can work together. And the the other piece is that we believe that people that exhibit our values are the types of people that express things like curiosity, right? Which is actually one of our values. And if you're curious, that's a necessary but not sufficient condition to go figure it out right. for yourself. So that's the interview process. And then in terms of the candidate, look, I I'm a big believer in hiring people for their strengths, not an absence of of weaknesses. We look for competitive people. You need to be competitive in sales. We have a lot of former professional sales uh, sports people on the team that, you know, maybe they've retired, maybe they reached a really high level, but not a not the place um, where they're going to go on and earn a great living doing it. They're looking to take their first professional job, and look, they're right. just used to doing the repetitions, and they're certainly used to failing because it's. It's really hard to, to hit a golf ball perfectly every on every swing, right? They're used to practicing, right. and you know they, they they're great fits for the team because they're used to doing the work, learning, and and figuring it out. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I I think there's a lot of good attributes in there: coachability, curiosity, competitiveness. Those are all those are all big ones that I also look for. I mean. Curiosity is just such a such a gold mine right there. I mean, if they're if you're truly curious, and you can look at it obviously in a bunch of different ways about the company, about the problem, about so on and so forth, that person's just naturally going to go over the top, and they're going to do the work that somebody who's not that curious isn't going to do. So that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about kind of where you guys are at today, because with twenty five people, you're at. You mentioned the the twenty five one on ones that obviously only only can happen for so, so many days before you crack. But what what does the team look like today, and kind of how is how is it structured? Yeah, and this is a, a thing that we're still iterating on. So yeah, now Chris has joined us. He's our he, he's our our current head of sales. He used to lead sales for Northern Europe for Box. Right, so oh, he okay. used to running big teams, used to operating at a high level, knew what great look like actually had done that stuff before and so yeah. that's that's been the first change we've we've reorganized a lot the sdr team so as i've talked about pods i've talked about organizing them into sdr teams that work on enablement together we've added yeah. a person to focus on onboarding and enablement for particularly for sdrs oh, um wow. who actually Sive, she was our third sdr hire she's awesome I'm really lucky to have her and and she's just been so great in thinking from first principles what does onboarding look like for a, a newly hired sdr yeah. the we've added two sales ops people so we added a sales ops person that turns out that once you add a sales ops person that can do fun stuff with salesforce success and marketing really want a lot of their time as well so <laughs> we've hired someone with an engineering background to be a second sales ops person to, yeah. to scale that. And now we're thinking about how we add extra structure within those SDR teams. So who's going, you know, looking at currently hiring and interviewing for a head of sales development. And the other big piece where we're, we're in the process of doing is actually on product marketing. So we haven't had a product marketing function before, but how can we embed a sales centric product marketer within sales to join those conversations, to ask those questions and really distill that optimal messaging, positioning, and everything else that's driven from that so that sales people can be the most effective they possibly can be, but so can everyone else in the business. So we can understand really how to speak the language of our customers. That's really interesting in just how the team has ultimately evolved from, you know, SDRs, AEs, and then obviously to what you have today with marketing support, you have sales ops support, you have kind of the, the go-to person who's done something like this before when you think about where you were to where you are today like what what do you point to is these like like hey i made this bet and it absolutely worked or i made this bet and maybe should not have made that bet before or wouldn't make that I bet again <laughs> i think in terms of bets i think there have been two big from a business go-to-market standpoint there have been two big bets that really have paid off. So the first one is around pricing and packaging. Uh, we're in our fifth generation of pricing. We increased our pricing most recently, eight days ago, I think, to be substantially higher than, than what it was before. And I think the reason why this is a bet is obviously you don't know if you can sell it, especially in a, a new category. You don't know if you can sell it until you try. 
it's high risk because AEs want products that sell, but also it's high reward because you can grow faster and what AE doesn't like a higher ACV product, they can sell to the same customer with the same sales cycle. And so that's worked really well every time so far, and I'm touching wood here, you can't see me off camera, but I'm touching wood saying that every time we've done it, it hasn't had a material impact on sales cycle. It has not had a material impact on win rates. And we've not had to go to a different market segment or move up market or anything. And that just means, you know, more growth, which everyone's happy with. And then the second piece that we've done is around the second bet was around investing much more heavily in six in customer success since the turn of this year. So we hired a really great VP of customer success. So Amy joined us here in Denver, actually, she was the 21st employee at SendGrid. She was running sale support services and success for them almost all the way to IPO. And so wow. bringing her in focused entirely on success. It's been a, a game changer for us in terms of revenue, right? Because we get, we make more revenue when our customers use our product. We get less churn when our customers use our product. Not that churn was ever a, a big problem for us, but it just made a good thing much better. And also for the first time we were doing upsells. And so that has given us another lever to grow revenue, to complement to complement all the good work sales was doing. And, and it was substantial for us because with more than a thousand companies using us, you can have a very big impact on revenue today just by working more closely with a thousand, with the a thousand customers that already like you. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and you can learn so much. I mean, you take all that and you funnel it back into sales, marketing, plus customer success can use it to better customer success. When, when you think about this, I mean, you're, you're in scale mode, I mean, you're in growth mode, you're, you're investing in all these different areas of the business. How do you do it in any kind of efficient way without just burning the bank down? So we've, one of the, the virtues of being a Europe, a starting a company in Europe is that you just don't have money, people throwing money at you at <laughs> 200 times ARR, right? Yeah. So, uh, and yet the metrics you need to hit are the same or higher, right? So sure. in terms of you want to go raise around, you've got to, it doesn't matter that you had a third of the money, you've got to have double the revenue of what it would be for a similar American company. And so yeah. we've never had any choice, but to be efficient, I think what's helped us are a few different things. So we that focus on that shared understanding of data and the transparent data that enables that is really, really important because then everyone can see how you're allocating capital and everyone can see the result, either it worked or it failed. If it failed, that's okay. Just don't fail the same way four times, right? Yeah. Go do, go do something different. <laughs> the, so that, that's been really, really helpful. And I think the other thing is like a hiring choice, I think in your leaders, you need to know if you're hiring a spreadsheet or a, or a novel. Now, novels and spreadsheets don't talk real well together. Sometimes you need a little bit of the novel, especially in, in marketing, but you need to make sure that if it comes down to how do I allocate capital, you have leaders that understand the impact of how that capital is allocated both with them immediately and through downstream decisions, right? So coming back to it, it's a really easy to lower targets and increase OTE for AEs. They're going to be happy, right? But what does that mean for your CAC? And what does that mean for your LTV to CAC? And what does that mean for how you're viewed in the, the market? And you can have that same discussion with different metrics about lots and lots of decisions, but yes. understanding the metrics is really, really key for efficiency. One of the things that you hear a lot around scale is process, systems, metrics. One of the things that I do with, with my own little company is we, we build up metrics driven approaches and systems in order to be able to show the measurable growth. I think there's also a balance between becoming like too focused on the metrics and too focused on what do the numbers say. A lot of times salespeople are like, you don't, you guys don't get it over there in the numbers space and the numbers department. Like sales is an art. Sales is, you know, sales is me talking to people. How, how do you, like, what, what do the numbers look like? Not the actual numbers themselves, but like, what is it that you're looking at each and every single day or week or month from a sales KPI metrics? For, and then including balance. So it's not just here's here's a hundred metrics that we're looking at and and that's obviously challenging to to make decisions off of. 
Yeah, I think, you know, you can definitely have analysis paralysis with, with too yeah. many metrics. And I think it's not so much, oftentimes the decisions that you make and the changes you make, it's not so much like, oh, what's that going to do to our CAC? For example, it's more about what's happening to the to the first derivative. So, how is that changing it? Did we expect that to drive CAC down, and did it go up? And if so, should we understand that, or should we run the run the experiment a little bit longer? You know, yeah. it's also the case that it's totally fine to have hypotheses that are not supported by data, right? That's that's awesome. We wouldn't have a product if we waited to have data if people wanted a product, right? We had to go build an MVP first. But you need to understand, like, how do you run those experiments? What do you expect to happen going into it? Did that thing happen that you thought would happen? And if not, what happened? And does that mean that that thing was proven? Or maybe it's just not proven yet right. or not at all. And so just having some intellectual honesty around that, I think you need to run experiments. You need to try new things. You need to be aware that, that they can't all be supported with data. Certainly as a founder, you place bets all the time, largely on you know, instinct sometimes, oftentimes with data, but your biggest bets are always on instinct. And that's okay. I think it's just being comfortable with that and making sure that the culture of the organization understands that. But, you know, the truth is like when you start out, everything's gut driven. And by the time you're, you know, doing your earnings call once you're IPO'd and people are, you know, analysts are debating over whether you miss something by a hundred basis points or not, then you have to be really numbers oriented. And if, if yeah. you're in the middle, or somewhere along that journey, then you just have to know that you're somewhere between those two extremes and, yeah. and manage accordingly. When I when I think about some of the tests, uh, I, I'm a big hypothesis testing kind of guy as well, and so I think about it and saying, okay, well, I increase my, you know, I double my pricing, and that's an easy test to make, right? Did it work or not? Do people still buy, or is all of a sudden the ones that we think are going to buy all of a sudden delaying and that type of thing? Do you have an example of something that? you have made some hypotheses around that that weren't really about data and you were able to make a decision on them or the other one i think about is to make a hypothesis but you're a startup you have a finite amount of time and cash this the experiment can't last for a year to get enough data to be able to make it like how, do you have an example as far as like what you what you mean by that in order to, to kind of share with the audience yeah, I think there's a, a lot there. I completely agree that you can't wait. You know, in a, any experiment that takes more than a quarter, you have to really want to do and has to have potentially really big impact. I think you've got to look and you... So a, a great example of this was, yeah, our space isn't defined. When we came into this year, we we realized... Well, we, we'd known for a few months now that everyone wanted to cut, cut their SaaS costs. And we knew that our customers, on average, reduced their software spend by 30% just by starting to manage something they never managed before. And yeah. so we had this hypothesis that we could make the like the H1 on Cladara.com basically like our customers reduce SaaS costs by 30%. You know, right? That that being the H1. Now we thought that would be really compelling. We use Google Optimize, I think it was at the time, to A-B test. So, surely enough, we got more clicks on the button next to that H1. We we probably didn't like lock in the change soon enough. We waited for too much of a, a statistical certainty before locking that in. And so we'd kind of proven our hypothesis. The fun thing was we actually didn't design a good test because the purpose of a business is not to get people to click a button. The purpose of a business is to get people to be customers. And mm -hmm. so what we realized, it took us sort of two or three months because we, we were not looking at this. What we realized was actually that change might've got more clicks, but it made our SDRs job harder on, on outbound because now like when, when prospects checked our website, it wasn't a message that really moved them to a sale, to a, to a purchase, right? We learned that actually the people booking the demo through the website, like the conversion rates from that next step had dropped off. And so we had a hypothesis, we proved it, but actually we learned that we were testing the wrong thing. That's really interesting. And I, and I, and I would bet that a lot of companies make that mistake. They make the change and you say, oh, well, this made this smoother but it actually made this other part behind it a lot clunkier. So it's really to understand the full scope of that, of that hypothesis and the overall process is going to be really important.
Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case. And the other thing I would say is like optimizing is a really great way to find like a local maxima, like the best version of that thing. But actually what you don't know if you're in the foothills or at the top of Mount Everest, right? And right. that's really where being bold and not being incremental, you have to be bold sometimes, even if you don't have data. Like we knew that that headline was some percentage better than the one that we had before. But yeah. how did we know that that was actually very good at all? We didn't, or the best possible way to express ourselves. And so even once you find something that works better than what you had before, you kind of have to keep testing because otherwise maybe you've optimized towards a dead end. Yeah, it's not a set it and forget it type of thing. So I got one last thing and then we can start to wrap up because I, I know you got to run is so now that you've hired Chris, you've you've hired this sales leader who has seen what good looks like. They've done this before. They understand what to do. They're starting to make some changes. Can you point to one or two things that they've done or that you're starting to see that it's like, oh, my gosh, this is this is this is what we need. We're so happy here. This is a game changer to us. So I think there have been there have been three things. So number one another doubling down on enablement, right? Chris being a very loud voice for the the value of that. Really, really key. Number two has been around setting up kind of upstream KPIs around activities. So like it's great when everyone's hitting their number, but what do we what are those leading indicators? that you're going to hit your number and how do we help you understand what you need to be doing, you know, first day of the month or first day of the quarter. So you, by the end of the month or quarter, you're going to hit your number. And so we've introduced what, what Chris calls the focus 250. So the activities and the process that you need to follow today to hit your, you hit your number at the end of the quarter and measuring those, communicating those, putting those on leaderboards. We never did that. I think I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of it. And it's already bearing results, right? Just helping an, a, an SDR in their first job understand how many dials do I need to do today yeah. so that I can organize my day and prioritize. And then the third thing is bringing kind of a more nuanced perspective around how comp is calculated, particularly for AEs. So making, we're making sure that we've got comp designed in a way that drives the behaviors that are aligned with the success of the business, especially as we go through these pricing changes and substantial pricing changes that change the rules of the, the game. Now that's, that's huge. I mean, when prices change, comp, comp needs to evolve with it, which I think a lot of, a lot of founders fail to kind of see how everything's really, really intertwined, not to mention what other systems, ops, other departments, that type of thing that all need to understand what, how, how this has a ripple effect. It's easy to just change a number to go up. You know, it's, it's harder to understand what are all the ripple effects through all of that. So that makes a lot of sense. Brad, th this is awesome. You are a, a wealth of knowledge. I think we could talk for a couple more hours about how, how you've been able to build this. I wanted to, I wanted to see, is there a, a favorite book? I like to ask all guests if there's a favorite book or a favorite resource that that you found to be very impactful that you'd recommend anybody listening today you know i huge huge fan of frank slootman's book amp it up it's not specifically targeted at sales but i think it's someone something that everyone can learn from regardless of their job it's basically do things better do things faster and and communicate more more candidly which is like a really simple idea but he walks through like why it's okay that you can discuss failure very candidly, very directly. You know, you got to hold people to a really high standard around you. You got to you got to know things. You've got to be willing to stand by the work you do, and keep that quality bar real, real high. Which that quality bar for me in sales is everything because they're the shop front of your business most often. They're the people how people interact with you, and if the quality bar is not there, it's it's really hard to build a great business. I mean, salespeople are out there talking to your customers and your and your prospects every single day. So make sure make sure make sure you're listening to them. That makes a lot of sense. Any last remaining wisdom that you can that you can share before we wrap this up? I think I'll share a quote, or at least the Brad synthesis of a quote from from that book, "Amp It Up." Yeah, and that's that execution each strategy for breakfast. I think that we can all think about what will work or what not. Kind of like the question you asked, like, what would you do differently? Who knows, right? Like, it's really easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. In the end, 
it's about executing real fast and iterating iterating fast to keep progressing yeah no that's great advice how does the how does the audience get more of you where can they where can they find find more about cladara or more about you well if you for example don't know how many saas products you've got why you've got them or even who to ask about it you should definitely go to cladara.com c l e d a r a com or if you just want to chat ask questions or follow up you can find me on twitter on my personal account it's brad van l and if you really want to talk to me my emails brad at cladara.com and i always respond to emails that's awesome we and we'll link all that stuff in the show notes brad this is awesome i appreciate you coming on we're gonna have to when you guys go ipo we'll have to do this again and we'll have to hear about the rest of the story and i, I can't wait to hear about that investor call so that's going to be a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> Alex, Thanks. thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll have to have you again soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.